It would seem that the more technologically sophisticated we get, the more we want anonymity. It kind of annoys me when I go to a store to buy some batteries and they want my phone number. Have you ever wished you had a fake social media account where you could post all the things you really thought? (laughs) Anonymity appears to release us from some accountability, you would think. Kind of reminds me of the lady I heard about who came in a little late to church and asked the usher to be seated on the front row. And the usher said, I'd be happy to take you there, but I I do not really think you want to sit on the front row. Our pastor is a wonderful guy, but he's a little boring. And she said to him, sir, do you know who I am? And he said, ma'am, I don't know who you are. And she said, I'm the pastor's mother. (laughs) The man dropped his head in embarrassment, and she looked up, and and he looked up to her, and he said, ma'am, do you know who I am? She said no, and he said, thank God, and left. (laughs) So anonymity has some privileges, but I want to show you this morning why Jesus never let people remain anonymous in regards to him. He insisted on public acknowledgement. In our text today, we start in Matthew 16, 13. Let's dive right in. If you have your outline or your notes or you're ready this morning, I'm going to go fast and hard because I've got some things I want to get said and time seems to get away from me and Lord help me to keep away from too many rabbit trails today. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city built within the borders of Israel on a hill that overlooked the Jordan Valley. And it was a beautiful spot next to a natural spring. And one of the natural features of it was this huge, huge rock-faced wall where the Romans built temple after temple after temple to gods after gods after gods. It was like a strip mall for the gods. And the newest temple at that time, when Jesus was on the earth with his disciples, the newest temple was Caesar's temple. And Caesar in that day called himself the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, In fact, that was inscribed on Caesar's temple. And by this point in the life of Jesus, a lot of people had opinions about him. So he takes his disciples there. Imagine this scene as the Lord takes his disciples to this huge rock-faced wall in Caesarea Philippi, a Roman city built inside the borders of Israel. And Jesus takes them there and probably stands there in front of this rock face with all of these temples that had been carved out, and he looks to his disciples and he says, who do people say I am? And verse 14 of our text, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, 
And others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. This event occurred right after the event of the blind man that was healed that we see in Mark's gospel, and it happened right after that, which is an illustration of Jesus healing spiritual blindness, giving giving spiritual sight to people who could not see spiritually. I, I think about that, and I think about how blessed I am as a pastor And we welcome you if you're new here today or this is your first or second or third time. It's so good to have you with us. And and I really hope that this service will be a blessing to you, will encourage your heart, will challenge you, will will love you, will beat you up if you need it. Whatever you need, that you'll get something good from the Spirit of the living God today. And uh, how many know we need challenged once in a while too? Amen. That's part of our journey. And I, I realize that as a pastor, it's, it's one of the most encouraging things for me is to see people come into this house sometimes that are spiritually blind and do not understand the presence or know the voice of God or the Spirit of God's beckoning on their life. And then to see them, the Holy Spirit, convict their heart and draw them to repentance and all of a sudden you begin to see the change in their, in their life, and all of a sudden they begin to see things differently. They begin to see things they, they never saw before. They begin to understand life and its true meaning in ways they never quite comprehended. It's one of the great joys of being a pastor or being involved in the house of God, as many as you are, and, and see God's work in our lives. Isn't he a great God? Amen? Amen. And so... Spiritual sight, what is spiritual sight? It's being able to see the truth about who Jesus is. That's what it is. In verse 18, now I say to you, Jesus is talking here, and he says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now this is a play on words. Jesus is standing right there. Imagine this. Imagine the scene now. He's standing there in front of this huge rock-faced wall at Caesarea and saying this in contrast to all the pagan temples carved in the rock. And Peter, which actually means in the Greek little rock, Petra in the Greek, is standing next to this great big rock-faced wall, this huge rock. So here's the little rock standing by the big rock, and the guy who's talking to him, Jesus, is the chief cornerstone. I mean, we've got a lot of rocks going on here, right? And uh, Jesus says, Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church. And when Jesus says, upon this rock I'll build my church, yes, yes, Peter means little rock, but the foundation of the church Listen now, this is very important. The foundation of God's church is the revelation of who Jesus is that's in his people's heart. It's the the foundation of God's church is the revelation of who he is. 
that you have a revelation of who Jesus is. And this is what I want to talk about today. And, and I want to be sure to say that Peter is not the foundation. But the, the foundation is the revelation that Peter has of who Jesus is, which could be the same revelation that you have of who Jesus is. And upon that rock, Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Jesus is not saying from here on out, I'm going to let you decide who goes to heaven. That's not what he just said there. It simply means that as his representatives, the apostles, are going to lay out the boundaries of what saving faith is all about, and it will be an accurate reflection of the teachings of Jesus. Jesus did not, when he ascended to heaven, Jesus did not leave them with a New Testament Bible. But he left a group of apostles authorized to write it under the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter is a small rock, but Christ is the builder who sets his apostles in a foundational position. And Jesus says, on that rock, I'm going to build my church. And hell cannot overthrow it. It was here that Israel built this big altar to Baal. When you study this out, it was right here that Israel built, built this huge altar to Baal because they'd been living in idolatry. And Baal was the god of the underworld. Who was Baal? The god of the underworld. So this was considered to be literally the gates of hell. And Jesus is saying that all of the adulterous confusion coming out of hell itself will not be able to withstand the apostles' testimony about Jesus. Then comes a really strange verse in our text, verse 20. He sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why would he do that? For the Jews, the Messiah was much as a political title as a spiritual one. Everyone assumed in that day that the Messiah would come as a warrior to throw off the power of Rome. And Jesus knew that once that got out, that he was claiming to, the, to be the Messiah, which was really a false concept or definition of who the Messiah really was. And when they, because they did not yet truly understand who he was who the Messiah really is. And, and Jesus knew if, if that got out, it was on. To claim that you're a king in a world that already has one is considered treason. And it would be either revolution or execution. But Jesus was not ready yet to die. So he doesn't want them out there claiming who he is until they know who he is. This is why it's so imperative, and what I'm going to be talking about this morning is that we really know who Jesus is, and what Jesus means by Messiah, and what Peter means at this point in the story is two different things. Verse 21, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests. 
and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took Jesus aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Boy, it takes a bold move for a guy to give a sermon critique to Jesus, don't it? But that's what Peter does. I mean, he's got a head like a rock, right? And Jesus turned and said to Peter in the way I learned it in the King James growing up, and I can hear my daddy preaching this, pre get thee behind me, Satan. Can you hear the old, some of you don't know them old-fashioned preachers. Talk about a spiritual high followed by a spiritual low. Can you imagine Peter hearing that from his Lord? He looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine Peter talking to his wife at dinner that night? Hey, how was work today, honey? Well, Jesus told me I'd be the anchor of his new church and also that I reminded him of Satan. <laughs> you know, footnote, this is one of the reasons that we know the Bible is authentic and true. It records encounters just like this. Peter would one day lead the church, and here, in their founding documents, they included a story where Jesus calls him Satan. Think about it. Think about this. If you were making up stories to gain support for your religious movement that you were starting, is this the kind of thing you'd make up? Imagine you were trying to get someone who is skeptical to come to church with you. Is this the kind of story you'd want to tell them? Hey, come to our church. Our pastor got kicked out of seminary for cheating and one of his professors called him Satan. Come on to our church. <laughs> I don't think so. Reminds me of, I'll try to stay on track, but I gotta give you, they come to me, I can't help it. They just come to me. I can see my dad preaching when I grew up in Florida and I'm a teenager and people love my dad and he was he was fun. He would preach hard, preach the word, but he, he'd had fun too. I mean, he could joke with the best of them. He had fun. For some of you who've been around here a long time and knew my dad when he was alive, he was something else. He was, he was something. And, uh, and uh, one time this lady that loved my dad, loved our church down there in Florida, he, uh, she said to her neighbor, you've got to come to our church. You'll just love it. Our pastor is full of the devil. That's what she said. <laughs> Made me think of that story. You know, they wouldn't, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't make that up and put it in the Bible. They put it there because it was true. And then Jesus says, Peter, you're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Now, folks, we need to take this personal for whatever we need from the Lord today in our own lives. Jesus says, Peter, you're thinking about victory and vengeance against the Romans, and you're thinking about prosperity on earth while I'm thinking about something much greater and much more eternal. Verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, 
You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. Now let's record some truths about confession here in your notes that I pray will be a tremendous blessing in your life and in your journey of faith. I'm talking about publicly professing what we believe. Number one, confession of who Jesus in your life is, the rock. Confession of who Jesus in your life is, the rock. That's the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Now, do you see how Jesus ties all his power to this confession of faith? Do you see it? When Peter makes this confession in verse 17, Jesus tells him, Peter, you did not learn this from any human being. Only the Spirit of God could give Peter and us this kind of vision and this kind of insight. I want you to know this morning that I I do not stand up here in my own intelligence to convert anyone as if I'm the smartest guy in the room or that I could even possibly do that. I can't. Not that smart. Southern boy. My dad called me a hick. He said, son, you were born a hick, you'll die a hick. But I'm a hick for Jesus, whatever a hick is. And I'm not that smart, and I have to preach things in ways that I can understand it, because sometimes it's too hard for me to comprehend, and I have to kind of boil it down and work on it and work on it so I can kind of grasp these great truths of the Bible and then get a hold of them for how it helps me live for him today. And I'm trusting the power of God to give spiritual insight through his word and bring conviction to souls that may be here right now and are without Jesus in their lives. And then we see in verse 18, Jesus said, Upon this rock I'll build my church. Jesus takes, listen to me now, Jesus takes our confession, our confession of faith, and uses it as conduit to unleash his power in our lives. This is why it's so important that we understand who Jesus is and don't have a false concept of who he is. We know who he is by studying God's word, and then we begin to confess that in our lives and and even to the people in our lives, and to our situations, and to the circumstances that we're in, that we're confessing, he is Lord. He's not only my Savior, he is Lord. He's the Master. His word is true. We're confessing, and when we confess Jesus and who he really is, not who we want him to be, but who he really is, here's what happens. The power of God is unleashed in our life. This is why water baptism is so important to a believer. The Bible says in Matthew 28, believe and be baptized. Why? We're obedient to the Lord. We're making a public acknowledgement of who Jesus is in our life. I remember when I got baptized. Now, I was baptized as a baby in the Roman Catholic Church. My parents were trying to do the best they can with what they understood and knew and doing what they thought was the best for me, but I don't remember it. I wasn't saved. I wasn't a child of God. I was a baby. The Lord had me, but, but I was a baby. I had not come to the saving faith. I, I did not come to the age of accountability yet. I don't remember it. Mom said I flinched. 
But I remember when, when I really understood salvation and began to own my faith and sense the power of the Holy Spirit drawing me and I confessed Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And I decided, Dad, could I get baptized? And it was a glorious day in my life because I was being obedient to the Lord. And, and I want to tell you that when I was obedient, that's why we're having a baptism class this Wednesday night to help you understand after family night worship at 6.30 on Wednesday, those that want to go to the class, Pastor Jeff and the team do a marvelous job teaching about it so that you can decide, do you want to be baptized or not? Is this your time? And then the following Wednesday, we have the actual baptism service. Because I remember getting baptized. And because of my obedience to the Lord and to his word, I remember the power of God beginning to magnify in my life. You got to understand, you guys see me as a pastor up here that started Calvary Church, but I was that little boy that was scared of my own shadow. I was the timid little introvert that couldn't talk in public, that my dad, before he was saved, beat me up and would literally backhand me and knock me across the room as a little boy and dare me to cry, and, and I would hold my breath trying not to cry and pass out, and I was scared, and I would roll up my T-shirt and bite my nails till they bled and could not talk. And Jesus came into my life and I began to, in little ways, acknowledge Jesus in my heart, in my life, and God began to change me, like he changed my dad. I got a new dad when my dad got saved, and, and, and then the Lord, somewhere down the road, as I was obedient in little ways, God began to unleash some power, and you know, for me to stand up here and preach to you like this is, is nothing less than the handiwork of God. That's what God does when we begin to confess who he really is in our life. That's why we got to understand the world we live in is trying to, to, trying to get God's people to shut up about Jesus. Boy, there's a heavy anointing in this place. Can you sense it? I believe that the Lord is going to speak to your heart today. The temptation that we have is to reshape our message to make Christianity more appealing and less offensive. Oh, people will never believe it if we say there's only one way of salvation. Could we just stop saying that? Some say if Christianity does not change its views on sexuality, Pastor, it's going to die. We're going to have to figure out how to change our views on sexuality so we can come alongside our culture better today. But I want to tell you something very honestly. With all the love in my heart, you would say, well, pastor, I'm a lesbian. I'm a homosexual. I'm gay. Can I come to Calvary? Yes, come. We want you to come. And I apologize for anyone who treats you poorly. But I want to tell you, in love, we're not going to dumb down the truth of what God's word says about sexuality to, to make Christianity better for everybody. We all must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, and we won't ever do it if we start dumbing down the word of God. The Bible is true to a thousand generations. 
The Bible is true. You see, if we fall for this stuff, here's what happens. We cut ourselves off from the power of God. Our confession of who Jesus really is provides God's power. And by the way, it's never been popular. If you're a Christian here today and desire to serve the Lord and who Jesus really is, could I encourage you to forget trying to win a popularity contest? Jesus was standing in front of a rock saying these things. The Roman Empire had lots of gods for people to worship. Just don't say that God is the, is the only God. In every culture, there's a temptation to compromise something in order to be more acceptable to the culture. In our day, one of the biggest is to remove what Jesus teaches about sexuality. Just change that, Pastor. Just change that a little bit. And it, we won't be so hated. In Revelations 2, let me, let me tell you, and I'm going to move on here. Jesus talked about a church in Revelations 2 that tolerated and practiced sexual immorality. And because of that, they forfeited their ability to shed the light of Jesus to the world. It's found in Revelations 2, 12 through 18. People say, if you don't soften your stance on this, you're going to lose people. And I humbly will say this bold statement here this morning in front of all of you and all of my Facebook church family that can't be with us here this morning. I would say this to you. I would rather lose you than lose the presence of Jesus. When we confess faithfully, we gain the power of God that flows into the body of Christ and shapes our lives for eternity. Now, this leads us to our next confession. Are you ready? Number two, if we confess faithfully, we are unstoppable. And on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell itself will not overcome it. Now, people usually treat this verse like it promises Jesus will protect us from all of Satan's vicious attacks. But this verse, this verse is about Satan's inability to keep us from plundering his satanic kingdom. Gates, you see... Think of it this way. Gates are not really an offensive weapon. We, we, usually you don't beat somebody over the head with a gate. Gates are a defensive weapon designed to keep people out. And Jesus is saying that when we confess faithfully, not only will he protect his church, us, and, and by the way, when, when I say protect us, here's what that means that his church will stand the test of time and no matter what comes at God's church, God's church will stand. Now that doesn't mean that we won't have some warriors in the household of faith that will be martyred for the cause of Christ. It doesn't mean that we won't have some casualties. It doesn't mean that you're, that you're gonna have to pick up your cross and follow him and, and you're gonna have some tough days. It doesn't mean that, but it means that in all of that, because God... When you understand who the Messiah is, it's got a much bigger presence. That you understand your life here on earth is just but a vapor compared to all that God's planned for you in eternity. That this life is not all there is for a child of God. There is so much more. And so whatever you face, whatever persecution, whatever trials you face, we have to get a bigger picture of who Jesus is. And, and the Lord is saying, 
upon that rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower my church. God always has a people. The question for us is, are we going to be one? Are we going to be a part of the kingdom of God or not? He'll enable us. This verse is telling us he'll enable us to advance God's kingdom in Satan's most well-fortified strongholds. God has blessed Calvary to share the gospel with hundreds of people. Many of them now live all over this country and a few around the world, and many of them are in vocational ministry. We've baptized hundreds of people, but are we satisfied? Are we going to huddle up and say, okay, God, now protect us and our families? Jesus promised that if we'd be faithful in our confession, he'd let us advance deeper and deeper into enemy-held territory. There are people here today, see, many of you are new in the last year or two or weeks or months, and you're new to this household of faith. But I want you to know that when Kathy and I started Calvary with a handful of people 25 years ago, we started with some people that many of them have died and gone on in their faith. BJ, I was thinking about your grandpa this week who made sacrifices for people he will never know on this side of heaven but are here today experiencing the love and the power and the strength of God. And I got to hug your grandma this morning. Because his church is moving on. We're continuing until he comes. You're sitting here this morning because of people who have sacrificed before you. There are thousands of people in our Quad Cities that don't know Jesus. You have family members you have children and grandchildren, many of you that don't know and are not walking with the Lord. We need to confess the truth and witness the power of God come in and through our lives to see people's lives changed. How many have got somebody you know that you want them to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection in their life? There are a generation of college students that need to be reached with the gospel. There are refugees displaced around the globe that need a gospel witness. There are populations of prisoners that need Jesus. There are foster kids that need to be taken care of. And there is one name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. His name is Jesus. And whoever will call upon that name will be saved. And Jesus is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to everlasting life. And whether that confession is popular or not, it comes with the power of God. And that's not something we ever want to lose. Hell does not rest, and so neither will we. All right, third confession. Satan tries to get us to reshape Jesus according to our liking. The strongest rebuke given by Jesus was the one he gave to Peter. It was initiated by Peter trying to force Jesus into the mold of what he assumed the Messiah should be. We dare not do that. Verse 22 of our text says, But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him, Jesus, for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus is explaining how the Messiah would have to suffer. 
Now, I want to tell you, this is still Satan's greatest temptation to us, to to reshape Jesus according to our expectations. We don't do it like Peter did. We have our own way of doing it here in America. We envision an Americanized Jesus. Can I just talk? Are you okay? Is everybody all right? Can you give me a few more minutes? I got some things that are heavy on my heart, and I know this is kind of a hard-hitting message. But I think you can take it. Just hang in. The beating will be over in a little while here. All right? I say this because, you know, we're living in different times. And it's, it's, it just puts such a, a conviction and such a desire to not waste this time in this pulpit to share truth and to, to give fair warning, to love you appropriately, to not, to not necessarily make you feel all lovey-dovey, though I, I like when you feel encouraged, but to be encouraged with truth even when it hurts a little bit and when it challenges us where we're living right now. We need the... T- I don't know about you. I think I do. I know about me. I need challenged. Because we live in this Americanized version of reshaping Jesus of who we want him to be, who is one part genie, one part fan club, one part financial advisor, one part American patriot, and the rest, therapist. God, help us. We like to think of Jesus as the great comforter who is morally permissive and approves of all things we approve of. And I just want to come along today say, and say today, that is Satan's distortion. But if we allow Jesus to be who he truly is, it will mean this. Sometimes he contradicts us or says things we did not expect. One, way, one of the ways that you know Jesus is your Savior and your Lord is when he seems hard to get along with once in a while. And he's up in your face. We have this version of Jesus as being this wonderful guy to hang around. And that's partly true. But how many know Jesus, if he was with you today at your house, He might get under your skin. He might say some things you don't like. We don't even think that way, do we? Most of the time, we don't think that way. We need to. Don't rebuke Jesus for that. Jesus is not a build a bear Jesus. There's a real Jesus who is not the one people make up, which is really just an idolized reflection of themselves. Number four, Satan's biggest distortion is getting us to believe we have a Jesus who keeps us from suffering in this life. Oh, got to talk about this for a moment. Peter objected to the concept of a Messiah who suffered. Peter did not want that. He rejected it. 
And even though we're in a different time and place, that's still the substance of Satan's biggest distortion today. Peter expresses what I might call the heart of Christian immaturity. He, the belief that Jesus Christ came so we would not have to suffer. False. Jesus said, no, Peter, I'm not going to save you from suffering. I'm going to save you through suffering. I'm going to save the world by going to a cross, and I'm going to work out my salvation in you by means of a cross too. Jesus does not always stop our pain. But he redeems our pain and gives it meaning. Listen to what Jesus tells Peter in verse 23. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are, you are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. See, many immature Christians believe that Jesus is some kind of a good luck charm. And if we walk with him, he's obligated to remove bad things that would ever happen to us, like financial hardship, health problems, or challenges with our kids. Like, serve Jesus. He promises to make all our foul shots go in and our stocks roar. But what happens when people believe this stuff? So you got to understand, I am just old enough, 60 years old. Wow, can't believe that. Cliff's older than me. He's 76 today. Say happy birthday, Cliff, Elder Cliff. Dave is with us today, Kathy's dad, and, and he asked me this morning, I said, hey, it's Cliff's birthday, and, and Dave said, how old is Cliff? And I said, I'm not sure, he, he must be 60-something, and, and then I, it hit me, well, I'm 60, so he's way older than that. <laughs> I mean, he was like old when we started the church, he was like 50 then, you know. <laughs> oh, I love you. Been with me the whole time. Hmm. Soldier. Where was I? Does anybody remember where I was? Oh, going to suffer. Thank you. That helps. Kelly, thank you. So I'm just old enough to remember a prosperity theology that came through the church. And honestly, there were a few things in there that were good that we needed to hear, but the whole of it began to reshape who Jesus is and our understanding of who he is. And I, I tell you, I want to encourage you today to not fall for this prosperity theology. This world's going to pass away. And if you're going to be a soldier in the army of God, you're not going to escape every bit of suffering on this earth. There are martyrs who have died for their faith. And because of it, the gospel has been advanced. I say this because when I became a parent, Kathy, when we became parents, we began to realize that we had a lot of friends in the prosperity movement. And many of them, if not most of them, their kids and their grandkids did not serve God because 
It was such phony, bogus baloney because all the things they were confessing didn't happen. And they, they began to throw God away. I remember, Kathy, when you and I would sit our boys down and say, listen, if you're going to serve Jesus, salvation is free, but it may cost you everything. People that buy into this stuff too much and then they think God doesn't keep up on his end of the deal. Jesus never said that when we came to him, he'd end all the problems in our lives. In fact, I will say this, coming to Jesus many times intensifies our challenges. His promise is that in these problems, he'll work to produce life in us and life in others through us. So here's the question this morning. When we figure that out, will we keep following him? To Peter's credit, he doesn't go away. I think that's cool. It takes a lot, of, a, a lot of gumption to get called Satan and not go away. You know what? Some of us need to have this kind of big boy, big girl britches. I don't know if I should say it that way, but I did. You know, if we really are going to be the family of God and brothers and sisters in the Lord, sometimes we ought to have enough relationship when we need it, to call each other out and you not go away and me not go away, to stay right there and take it because maybe the challenge or what we didn't want to hear is exactly what we needed to hear. So, Peter doesn't go away. In another scripture, Jesus made statements like this and a lot of people quit following him. And they were like, hey, we're all about the healing and the free food and the blessings. And when that's gone, we're out of here. We're not into this take up your cross and follow me stuff. See you later, alligator, right? And at this point in that story, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says this in this other story. He says to Jesus, he says, where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. P Peter may be thinking, yes, I'm frustrated by you, and I don't like what you're saying sometimes. But at the end of the day, Peter is saying this, I'd rather have you and be mad than without you. Some of you have started to follow Jesus. You're here. Many of you have started to follow the Lord, and it's gotten hard. He's demanded some area of obedience, and it's difficult. Will you stay with Jesus? Will you hang in there? All right, that leads me to the last point. And I got one minute if I'm going to end on time, and that's not going to happen. <laughs> so here it is. The last point, and it's your fault. You've been pulling all this out of me. It's, it's all your fault, right? Yeah. All right, number five. Jesus seeks committed followers, not anonymous consumers. Verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. 
In Jesus' time on earth, the cross was a horrific, haunting symbol of death and shame. And sometimes our obedience to Jesus will not feel abundant-like, but death-like. Salvation is free, but like I said earlier, following him may cost you everything. When we truly follow Jesus, you know what I sense this morning? I'm, I'm going to try to close here. You know what I sense? God's going to challenge some people here in this house and on Facebook. And today's, not this message per se, but what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart and the challenge that's going out is going to cause you to make some lifelong decisions that's going to change fundamentally your direction of where your life and your family is going. And I'm just going to say this. Dad, when you get this, Mom, when you make this declaration and you make this confession of who Jesus is, and you quit riding the fence, and you quit playing footsie with Jesus, the power of God's going to unleash into your home and begin to come into your family's lives and your children's lives in ways that you cannot even imagine in this moment. It's going to start with your confession, not just the confession of your mouth, but the confession of your life, of who Jesus is. When we follow Jesus, we have the assurance of heaven, stability in the things that matter. And we know, according to Romans 8, if we love Jesus and are called according to his heart and life, that he's working all things, bad and good, he's working it all out for our good. It's going to ultimately work out. But at some point, our faithfulness to Jesus will feel death-like. Our desires will go one way while he's telling us to go to a different way. For example, he tells you to end a relationship that you don't want to end. Or to make a financial sacrifice that would significantly alter your lifestyle. Or to not live together and begin saving sexual intimacy for marriage. Or to submit to God's vision of sexuality when it's not what you want. Or to forgive somebody you really don't want to forgive. Or to take a stand on something that it'd be easier to be silent about. To have someone over to your house that you don't want to have over. To speak the gospel to somebody that you're intimidated by. For some of you, it's just the next step of getting water baptized. That's the next step. And out of that, God does other things in your heart and life. Now, here's, here's how I'm going to end this message. If we're not obedient to the Lord's call, can we really say that we're a follower of Jesus? Obedience to Jesus will eventually take us in a, in a direction that is opposite of what our fleshly desires want. When that happens, we have to answer this question. Why are we following Jesus? Are we following him because we want him more than anything and we'd be willing to give up anything to have him? 
Because a consumer is someone who follows Jesus to get something from him. A follower is someone who would leave everything just to have him. Is Jesus enough? Is having Jesus enough? Are we a consumer or a follower? I'm not your judge, but there are a few things that would suggest that maybe we're consumers. We have areas of our lives where we know that we're not in alignment with, with what God wants, and we don't deal with them. Consumer. Not a follower. We've never offered our career to God. That's a consumer. We've never offered our possessions to him. That's a consumer. We don't spend time with God in the word. Our attendance to congregate with God's people is sporadic. And we use anything like COVID to make it okay. And there are some people listening on Facebook that need to be home, and I'm totally okay with it, and God knows right where you are. But there are a few people, and I love you enough, the Holy Spirit's going to come right through those Facebook waves right now, and you're using it as a convenience to stay in your jammies on Sunday morning. And may the conviction power of the Holy Spirit draw you to say, I got to get up and get with God's people and get in the house. I said it. Yes, some need to stay home. Are we consumers or followers? And if we do come, do we volunteer? Are we involved in ministry? Are we in fellowship with people here in our church? Are you to live on the fence, one foot in, one foot out? Pastor, why are you saying that? Hey, if you're young in the Lord and new, We want to coddle you, put our arms around you. We want to help you fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up. We want to help you. Some of you should be past some of this. You're still being offended. You're not getting what you want. You don't have the position you want. You don't have this. Could I humbly say, get over yourself? Could I say that? I did. Get over yourself. Why? There's too much at stake here. This church, we need to be a real church, preaching the real gospel, singing the songs of Zion. Our leaders need to lead by example. Or what do we got? We got a social club. That's not who Calvary is. We are not a social club. We are the body of the living Lord Jesus Christ. We are the army of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus. We are brothers and sisters in the army of the Lord. (laughs) Humbly, I say to you, get in, get out, or get run over. Don't ride the fence because you might mess with the culture of what God's trying to do in this house. Do not ride the fence. I want you to get in. 
But if you're not going to get in, get out. Wow. That was hard. It shakes me. But I believe it's true. And when we, like Peter, confess Jesus publicly with our lives, he begins to build his kingdom in us, and hell itself will not stop us. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Stand to your feet. Lord, Lord, I pray that um, this message would be received with all the love and care intended. Like my daddy used to say, if I stepped on any toes here today, it's because I'm a poor shot. I'm aiming at the heart. Lord, shape our church for the journey ahead. Help us, Lord, to confess you with our lives, our lips, our mouth, and know who you are and not some false concept of an Americanized Jesus. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you've called us, chosen us to serve you. We praise you. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you all.